Well, a big question on everyone's mind. How could Selena be missing for 20 days with searches happening for 20 days and search crews miss finding her body? So she wasn't there. Them sick bastards brought her back. Our women are not turning up dead in fields or thrown over fences on their own accord. And that's what law enforcement wants the world to believe. My name is Emma Jane. And when I became aware of the crisis of missing and murdered indigenous people in Montana, I picked up my life and moved out here to try to understand these stories and do what I can to get more eyes on them. I'm not an investigator. I'm not a journalist. I'm not a cop. This podcast is a one-woman operation to talk about true crime through the lens of systemic oppression and to be a platform for the community to tell the truth of their stories, the truth that you won't see on the news. This is Out of Sight, Missing and Murdered. Okay, so now here's another thing. That medical examiner in Billings, we're going after him, not just us, a whole bunch of people and the federal government. Kurtzman, Kurtzman, something like that. And he's the one who medical exams all these bodies up in Billings and just says hypothermia. That's the voice of Selena's Aunt Cheryl. And she told me that at the end of a really long phone call. My head was already spinning with the insanity and injustice of everything with Selena and her siblings and just everything. How big the problem of MMIP in Montana is. And then she said that and I was like, God damn. What are the chances that this family gets stuck not only with the kind of cops they had to deal with, but also a bad medical examiner on top of that? Like, what are the odds? But when I looked into it, I realized that the chances are pretty high. Like law enforcement, the whole system of forensic science and medical examiner's offices is not as squeaky clean as we are led to believe. There was an investigation done by NPR and ProPublica And that investigation found that there's actually no federal oversight of medical examiners' offices or the investigations or autopsies they conduct. There's none. There's no standardization. There's no quantifiable measures of accuracy that a medical examiner must meet. Medical examiners, also called forensic pathologists, can be accredited, but seeking accreditation is completely voluntary, and most medical offices choose not to pursue it. Out of the 2,342 forensic offices in the U.S., only about 80 are accredited. The word of a medical examiner is presented as fact in these cases, but they botch autopsies a lot more often than you might think. And when they do, it can have serious consequences. There are a lot of people sitting on death row, and a lot who have already been executed, who were convicted largely based on testimony from a medical examiner that was later found to be incorrect. So how does this nationwide problem fly under the radar? Well, I think a big part of it is because the patients examined by medical examiners are dead and can't speak up about what is being done to their bodies. And I think the last thing a grieving family wants to do is second-guess the autopsy. And also, most of us can't read and understand an autopsy report. It's like legalese, but medical. And I promise this isn't just me raging against the machine. Even Harry T. Edwards, a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals, said word for word that there's a tremendous need for the forensic science community to improve. But sometimes, the bullshit of a medical examiner is so blatant that they can't hide their lies and incompetence. And that was the case with a Colorado girl named Morgan Ingram, 
whose autopsy was done by the same medical examiner as Selena's. Morgan was a 20-year-old college student. At the time of her death, she was living at her family home with her parents near Carbondale, Colorado. Morgan is remembered as a kind and happy person, and she was working towards the goal of attending law school someday. She liked to bake, she enjoyed dance and photography. She was loved by her family, her parents, her two older siblings, and the many people lucky enough to have Morgan as a friend. Morgan's body was found on December 2, 2011, but her story starts four months before that, when Morgan began hearing strange tapping noises on her bedroom window. It turned out that Morgan was being stalked and spied on, something she came to realize one evening when she was getting ready to take a shower. The bathroom window was open a crack, and when Morgan went to close it, a fist shot up from below and punched the window. This was terrifying for Morgan and the whole family, of course, and they took it really seriously. The Ingrams put several safety precautions into place. They put a panic button next to Morgan's bed that she could press and it would sound an alarm to wake up her parents. They installed several security cameras outside their home and immediately reported the stalking to the sheriff's department. The Ingram security cameras captured footage of a strange man lurking outside their home on several occasions. It never caught his face, but based on clothes, car, and body type, Morgan was able to identify the stalker as Keenan Van Geichel, a guy who lived three houses down. And this happened so frequently that in the four months before Morgan's death, sheriff's deputies visited the home 50 times as part of an ongoing felony stalking investigation. Which brings us to the night of December 1st. Morgan spent part of the evening out with friends and got back home around 9 p.m. Nothing seemed to be out of the ordinary, except that Morgan and her mom were bickering. Just normal mother-daughter stuff. I guess Morgan's mom had been kind of nagging her while Morgan was out with her friends. So when Morgan got home, she was in a bad mood. Basically went straight to her room and closed the door. And this is only relevant because Morgan's dad knocked on her door later that evening to check on her. It wasn't normal for Morgan to be upset with her mom, and I would imagine the stalking situation was putting a lot of stress on the family. So before going to bed, Morgan and her dad talked for a while in her bedroom, just chatting, having a little heart-to-heart, and by the time he had knocked on her door, Morgan had already changed for bed, into a tank top and flannel pajama pants. Her dad remembers that clearly. When the family woke up the next morning, everything seemed fine. There had been no disturbances in the house during the night, so no one thought anything was wrong. But then, when it was getting late into the morning and there was no sign of Morgan, her dad went into her room to wake her up. I walked out the door and I thought everything was going to be fine. And obviously nothing was fine. That's the voice of Morgan's dad, Steve Ingram. I didn't interview him. That's a clip from Crime Watch Daily. You'll hear his voice and the voice of Morgan's mom, Tony, a few more times throughout her story. So Morgan's dad shook her shoulder gently and got no response. He shook it again a little harder, like, come on, wake up. When he still got no response, he pulled back the covers to see what was wrong. And when he did, he found his daughter dead. He called 911 and moved Morgan's body to the floor to perform CPR. But by that time, it was too late. Morgan was long gone. Enough time had passed that rigor mortis had already taken effect, and Morgan's body was stiff. Which is another strange thing. 
Morgan's elbows were bent, and she was holding her hands up in front of her chest. Morgan knew sign language, and a private investigator later realized that Morgan's hands were frozen in a distinct way. With one hand, she was signing the letter K, and the other was signing the letter N. Her family says that she was signing a K and an N for Keenan, the name of her alleged stalker. But if that's not enough, the panic button next to Morgan's bed was ripped from its wire and found in the corner of her bedroom. Morgan had a few pieces of valuable jewelry which were missing, so was her bedsheet, and she was no longer wearing the pants and tank top she wore to sleep the night before. She had on clothes that you would wear out, a shirt and black jeans. Her pajamas were never found. And there's more, but that's what everyone knew right off the bat. Which, to me, this is already super suspicious. For four months, this poor girl was stalked and spied on, and the stalking was documented. The sheriff's department knew about it. And then all of a sudden, she's found dead in her home. Doesn't take a genius to put two and two together here. But according to medical examiner Robert Kurtzman, Morgan died of natural causes. Kurtzman said that there were no signs of trauma to Morgan's body, but here's what her parents say they saw when they were desperately trying to perform CPR. I mean, it was just the scariest thing. Her hair was all matted. She had blood on her forehead. She, um, I mean, it was just bad. Her nose was smashed. She was on the wrong side of the bed. Everything was wrong. There was blood across her teeth. Her nose looked like it had been smashed. Um, And... Her neck was all purple. It looked like somebody had tried to strangle her. There are photos of Morgan's body that verify what her parents remember seeing. And if I were an investigator in this case, I would assume that there was an element of sexual assault until or unless there was proof that there wasn't. Again, just because of the circumstances. This wasn't random. The alleged stalker had been acting on a long-term obsession with Morgan, it seems. And on top of that... The black jeans she was wearing were found to be unzipped and unbuttoned. But despite all that, Robert Kurtzman never conducted a rape kit. It was later found that Morgan had double the lethal dose of a drug called amitriptyline in her blood. Amitriptyline is used in a variety of treatments. It has a sedative effect. And another sedative called flexerol was found not in Morgan's blood, but in her stomach. But get this. Based on the way the flexerol was metabolized, it was determined that the drug entered Morgan's body post-mortem. Morgan's parents hired Dr. Michael Doberson, a forensic pathologist, for a second opinion. Here's what he had to say about Kurtzman's findings. What is your opinion of Dr. Kurtzman's initial report? After reviewing all the information that I had for the case, I was really surprised, especially in the face of having lethal levels of amitriptyline in her blood. Uh, I just found it very, uh, very confusing. Massive amounts of amitriptyline, a drug usually prescribed for abdominal pain and headaches, was found in Morgan's system. Remember, Dr. Kurtzman first concluded Morgan died of natural causes, then months later he changed it to suicide by drug overdose? Normally, if someone was taking amitriptyline as prescribed, the level would be 50 to 250. Uh, Toxic levels are usually considered anything over 500. 
and now consider that she's almost got 8,000 nanograms per ml in her blood, which is extremely high. And look, I'm not defaming anybody. For all I know, Robert Kurtzman is a great doctor. But that said, I do want to read you a post from the Facebook page, R.I.P. Morgan Ingram. I'm not totally sure who runs this page, but Morgan's mom, Tony, is active on it and seems to approve of the content. This is a DM that was allegedly sent to the page. They posted the message, but not the name of the sender. Here's what it says. I used to work for Dr. Kurtzman. I remember when Tony Ingram called him and pleaded with him to please contact Morgan's doctors in Los Angeles. He, Kurtzman, told her if she, Tony, didn't stop, he would change Morgan's death to suicide. He basically threatened to change Morgan's cause and manner just because Mrs. Ingram said to him to contact Morgan's doctors in California. Again, I'm not saying that's true, I'm just sharing what's posted, but Tony herself said something similar on Crime Watch Daily. Her doctors jumped in and they started trying to talk to the forensic pathologist to tell him, you're wrong, this is wrong, you know? And um, he didn't want to talk to them. And what also gives these allegations some weight is that eight months after the initial autopsy, Kurtzman did change Morgan's cause of death. Whether or not he did that despite Tony, who knows. But he changed his determination to say that Morgan committed suicide by overdosing on amitriptyline. By the accounts of family and friends, Morgan was not suicidal and had no history of being suicidal. Of course I believe them, but to me it also kind of seems beside the point. Even if she did have a history of depression, even if she was experiencing symptoms of depression at the time of her death, how could this have been suicide? For so many reasons, but the most compelling to me is the flexorol that entered Morgan's body after she'd already died. There's no way that could have happened if Morgan died by suicide. So I know that we're off topic from Selena's case, but if Robert Kurtzman could allegedly botch an autopsy and throw off an investigation this badly, who's to say the same thing didn't happen with Selena? Like Morgan, Kurtzman said that Selena had no signs of trauma to her body. But is that even true? And at this point you might be thinking, well, there are two sides to every story. Maybe Morgan's family just doesn't want to accept the fact that their daughter did die by suicide. Maybe this isn't really on the medical examiner. But remember Cheryl said that there's a whole bunch of people going against Robert Kurtzman? She mentioned another case when we talked. Another case where Robert Kurtzman doesn't come out looking great. Okay, so another family I work with was this white guy from Canada. His name's Cam Collins. His mom has extensive, extensive um, physical evidence and everything, like computer evidence, his phone, she knows where he was, she could pinpoint everywhere he was, yet they're not doing nothing down here. So she's one I work with, and she's really going hard for the medical examiner, and she, I got a message from her the other day. Her and this woman, okay, she... Cameron Collin was a 37-year-old Canadian engineer who was working in the States at the time of his death. He was tall, like, memorably tall. At six foot five, he towered over his family and friends. And he was one of those lucky people who were gifted both academically and athletically. He got his engineering degree from Montana Tech in Butte and was successful in his career as a petroleum engineer. He also excelled at every sport he ever played. Cam is remembered as an outgoing person 
who could strike up a conversation with literally anyone and make the whole room laugh. Cameron went missing while visiting Billings for a college friend's wedding. On October 4th, 2018, Cam attended the bachelor party, which was held at a rural property in Pryor, a town on the Crow Reservation. Not too far, by Montana standards, from Billings. The other guests at the party say that Cam was intoxicated, and they left him in a shed to sleep it off, while the rest of the party went into town. And then, when they got back, they said that Cam was no longer in the shed, but I guess that they said that they thought he left on his own and went somewhere? I don't know. There are a few different stories of what happened at this bachelor party, and none of them make much sense. But two days later, when Cameron didn't show up to the wedding ceremony, he was officially reported missing. Cam's family traveled from Alberta to Billings to search for him. There's a creek partially on the property where they had the bachelor party, and that's where Cam's family and sheriff's deputies thought to search first, which makes sense at that point to think that Maybe there was a tragic accident that took Cam's life. There are certain risks to drinking near a body of water. They searched that creek extensively, with helicopters, rafts, and cadaver dogs brought in to smell and taste the water for signs of a body. But when none of these searches found Cam or any sign of him, it seemed pretty clear that he was not in the creek. But then, a month later, on November 3rd, his body was found on the bank of the water, just a hundred yards away from the shed where Cameron was reportedly last seen by the other guests at the party. Two days later, Robert Kurtzman conducted the primary autopsy and determined Cam's cause of death to be accidental drowning. Cam's mom, Marion, said that the family could have accepted that under different circumstances, but there were too many inconsistencies and missing pieces, starting with the autopsy. There were a couple mistakes that, if nothing else, speak to the lack of attention to detail. Cameron was found wearing a black, long-sleeve affliction t-shirt, but the autopsy said that Cam was wearing a green shirt, and the color of his pants was also inaccurately reported in the autopsy. Robert Kurtzman said that foul play was not suspected in Cam's death, but the findings of an independent forensic pathologist hired by the Collin family paint a much different picture. It was found that Cam's clothing was stained with blood, particularly around his neck, and Cam's x-rays were reviewed, and it was found that he had a broken nose and possibly multiple other head injuries, and a layer of composting sawdust was found underneath Cam's clothing on his skin. Cameron always wore a medallion necklace, a fossil watch, and a silver engineering ring. When he was found, he wasn't wearing any of those, and all three pieces of jewelry are still missing. But there was a mark on Cameron's wrist where the watch was, and Cam's pinky, the one where he wore the ring, was found to be severed, like maybe the ring had been ripped off. The family also noticed that there was a receipt in Cam's back pocket from a lunch he had paid for the day before the bachelor party, as well as a piece of paper clenched in his left fist. Which seems to directly contradict the theory that Cam drowned and lay in the water for 30 days. Because how would a piece of paper and a receipt still be intact? And that's not the only piece of contradicting evidence. Cam's phone was in his back pocket when he was found, and when the phone was recharged and turned back on, it worked fine. There was no sign of water damage at all. And also, Kurtzman noted Cam's weight as 40 pounds heavier than he weighed the month before his disappearance. 
Kurtzman attributed the additional weight to Cam's body being waterlogged. But get this. The independent forensic pathologist found that there was no sign of water in Cam's lungs. There was also no sign of the swelling that presents in a person's lungs when they die by drowning. Cameron's lungs were found to be completely undamaged. I reached out to Cam's mom, Marion. She provided the following statement about the work of Robert Kurtzman and the impact it has on victims and families. Here's what she said. Chief State Medical Examiner Robert Kurtzman is not an accredited medical doctor. He's a doctor of osteopathy. He does not follow the American Coroner's Association recommended autopsy procedures that include taking hair samples, collecting fingernail samples, and other investigative processes. A good autopsy is the last chance that a dead body has to tell the truth of how they died. Kurtzman prejudges the deceased and makes his own assumptions of the victim and cause of death. His cut-and-pasted autopsy reports reflect this, with cause of death being usually hypothermia, exposure, and quote-unquote no trauma to the body. Unfortunately, that statement holds up in court. A Native American posted on Facebook, quote, we are suffering from an epidemic of hypothermia. Another favorite is suicide, even though all indication may be otherwise. The state medical examiner is a powerful position because that person signs off on the work of many other autopsies done by others. In my son Cameron's autopsy, Kurtzman signed off on his own pathologist work. No peer review of what he might have missed, like the folded paper clenched in Cam's fist, or the missing tip where his engineering ring had been ripped off. Kurtzman only follows Kurtzman substandard autopsy processes, and therefore ruins forever the lives of many grief-stricken families. With the help of a data specialist, Cam's mom noticed that GPS data and texts and photos had been deleted from her son's phone after he went missing. For example, the GPS data from October 4th, the night of the bachelor party, was gone. But that deleted data, at least some of it, was able to be recovered, and when it was, it revealed that Cam's phone had been all over the place during the month he was missing. His phone pinged in various parts of Montana, as well as North Dakota, Utah, Nebraska, Wyoming, and Calgary. And Cam's phone pinged in some specific places too, not just regions. GPS through a Google account can be tracked to a specific Wi-Fi network, which is reliable as far as knowing precisely where the phone was and when. And Cam's phone pinged to the Wi-Fi of the Yellowstone County Sheriff's Department. But that was nine days before his body was found on the bank of that creek. The Sheriff's Department never provided an explanation as to why Cameron's phone would ping to their Wi-Fi nine days before he was found. And they also have never seemed very interested in investigating his case further. In fact, just a few days after his body was found, a sergeant sent out an email that literally said word for word, we're trying to wrap up this missing person investigation. Which, in my opinion, seems like some kind of corruption or cover-up surrounding Cameron's death. And it's too much to get into here, but there's reason to believe that corruption or cover-up with the sheriff's department could also be a factor in Morgan's case. And the reason I tell you all that is because corruption with the police is another big problem with forensic science generally. There's a troubling pattern of medical examiners altering their findings to fit a preconceived narrative, and a lot of the time, 
it's a narrative that favors the police. For an example of a case that we all know, let's talk about George Floyd. When George Floyd's autopsy was conducted, the findings were clearly shifted to minimize the actions of Derek Chauvin. According to the medical examiner, there were no physical findings in George's autopsy to support a diagnosis of traumatic asphyxia or strangulation. Instead, the autopsy said George died basically as a complication of underlying health problems combined with improper restraint. But we all saw George Floyd die under the knee of Chauvin. We all heard him say, I can't breathe. We all know that you don't need to have any pre-existing conditions for a knee on your neck to be the kind of quote-unquote improper restraint that kills you. In the case of George Floyd, the medical examiner's report is basically telling all of us to forget what we saw with our own two eyes and to just take their expert word on it. Trust the science of the autopsy. But here's the thing, potentially unpopular opinion. You don't have to trust the science every time. In fact, I really hate how science as a concept has been so weaponized by the two-party political system, especially since the start of the pandemic. I feel like there's this societal vibe now where left-wingers say that right-wingers are dumb for not quote-unquote trusting the science enough to get the COVID vaccine, and the right-wing say that the left are dumb sheeple because they do trust the science enough to get the vaccine. I'm not making any kind of statement either way about that, but what I'm saying is that I feel like there's this thing now where we think we can judge someone's character based on their view of science. And it drives me nuts because, I mean, full disclosure, I'm not a science person, I've never really been good at it, but even I know that science is not a monolith. Not all science is created equal. It depends on who's funding the science and who's doing the science. And also, what we refer to as science in America is Western medicine. And in the grand scheme of time, Western medicine just hasn't been around that long. In the timeline of the universe, Western medicine is basically in its baby stage of existence. And the specific branch of forensic science within Western medicine hasn't even been around long enough to be in a baby stage. There's still so much we don't know. In the grand scheme of time, forensic science is basically a 10-day-old fetus. But unlike a 10-day-old fetus, the field of forensic science does not have the unfettered support of the government. We talked about that earlier, with the negligent way medical examiner's offices work, but there was also an extensive report from the National Research Council in 2009, which revealed even more ways that Because of lack of oversight, regulation, and funding from the federal government, forensic science in America was failing. The report said that, quote-unquote, rigorous and mandatory certification for forensic scientists was lacking, and that many forensic science methods at use did not have peer-reviewed studies to back them up. But setting aside all of that, at the end of the day, science, and I'm going to group medicine in there too, it's a system as influenced by racism as any other system in America, like law enforcement. For one example of the intersection between science and prejudice, let's talk about medical racism. There are countless examples of medical racism against indigenous people, but I want to quickly tell you the two stories that first came to my mind. Just this past spring, a two-year-old baby girl in Canada named Santea Tayo Greyeyes was denied medical care when her mom brought her to a clinic for flu-like symptoms and a fever. The clinic refused to see Santea at all. 
They just told Santea's mom to take her home and give her Tylenol. The baby died the next day. And there's another story right here in Montana that's super on my mind right now. Ivan McDonald is a Blackfeet filmmaker who's currently working on a documentary about MMIW in Montana. And at the time of this recording, he just had to have emergency gallbladder surgery, and thank God he's okay, he's recovering well. But right now, it's the end of August, and Ivan had been sick and trying to get treated since April. He's had to go to the emergency room by ambulance several times, and his illness resulted in a 90-pound weight loss, according to his family's GoFundMe. Ivan saw a lot of specialists, but got misdiagnosed and sent home a lot. Which, I don't want to speak for him, I don't know him personally, but there definitely is a pattern of hospitals and doctors in America not taking seriously the pain of brown people. So again, thank God Ivan is okay, but he could have been saved so much pain and a mountain of medical bills if he had had this surgery months ago like he probably should have. And those stories are not the exception to the rule as far as how natives are treated or not treated at hospitals. I mean, this is a topic for another day, but just some of the stories I've personally heard about what goes on in IHS, Indian Health Services clinics, with white doctors, oof, it's kind of brutal. So, just like there are racist doctors, like the ones who saw Santea and Ivan and turned them away, there are racist medical examiners who will look at a case like Selena's, just say hypothermia, because what's it to them? They probably just see her as another dead Indian. Now, both Morgan Ingram and Cam Collin were young, beautiful white people, so we see from their stories that white folks aren't immune from the negative ramifications of broken systems like forensic science, but we know, of course, with non-white folks, specifically indigenous people, the experience of systemic oppression is much more universal. And so I think for some of us, when we hear medical examiner, our brain automatically categorizes whatever that person's determination is as more official, more reliable, because it comes from a person who society considers to have authority and expertise in the field. It's easy for some of us to think of a medical examiner as a professional who's going to come in and clarify the situation when a person dies mysteriously. I mean, that's how we see them on TV. But just remember that when it comes to forensic science and medical examiners, society's bar is low. And for a lot of Native American families, if their loved one is found dead, the medical examiner is oftentimes less likely to help and more likely to just completely ignore the family, never return their calls, never answer any of their questions. But don't get me wrong in all that, I'm not anti-science. I think the work of science to understand the natural world is lovely, but there are these systemic problems which disproportionately hurt the Native American population and throw the legitimacy of autopsies like Selena's into question. And as I said, I just think Western science is too relatively new in the grand scheme of time to be as reliable as we are led to believe that it is. But what people have been doing since the beginning of time is using their eyes. And you don't have to be an expert to know what you saw and didn't see. So I think it's very oppressive and condescending that the findings of the medical examiner trump the word of so many people. Here's Selena's Aunt Cheryl. Yeah, I was gonna ask you if it would be possible with the terrain around the rest stop and you were there, you know, searching, would it be possible that, that she was there the whole time like the investigators are saying? No, no. 
not the pictures I have, not the people who helped us search that said, nope, I was here. I have a man that was walking. He says, no, I was here. He was the day we went and seen the spot. We didn't get to see where she was found until the Tuesday following, but like, I think it was the 21st. And the guy was there, and he's her, you know, in our, in our tradition, your uncle three times removed is your grandpa, you know. So okay. it was one of her grandpas, and he said, I walked here. And, you know, and then he's not the only one who said he was there. We, I have a mother who was out there with her boys on side by side. And what they did was they stayed close enough so they could see everything between them. And they were there. I've talked to a decent number of people in passing about Selena's case, and I've combed through many, many comment sections on Facebook. I've seen a lot of similar accounts to what Cheryl described. And what seems more likely to you? That one medical examiner, especially one like Kurtzman, is lying? Or that everybody else is? So this time, let's not trust the science. Let's trust the people. Up until earlier this year, Robert Kurtzman was the chief state medical examiner in Montana. Which, no offense, but the state of Montana is kind of a dumpster fire. I mean, not for me personally. I actually love it out here. I may never leave. But there's a reason I'm doing this podcast. There are so many cases of missing and murdered Indigenous women and men in the state, and so much corruption. To me, the fact that Kurtzman was the chief state medical examiner says that he was willing to play the game and be a part of the corruption. Because if he refused to go along with it, he wouldn't be in that position of power. People who speak up against systemic wrongdoing tend to end up fired. Robert Kurtzman is the perfect example of how a bad person in a position of power leaves a trail of hurt and injustice with their career. It was easier for me to find information on the cases of Morgan Ingram and Cameron Collin, because in those cases, the family was able to bring in an independent forensic pathologist to contradict Kurtzman's findings from an expert rather than just a common-sense point of view. But in the cases I cover after Selena's, his name will pop up again. He's kind of a recurring character. So are the strange findings of his autopsies. And so with Selena and Morgan and Cameron, I have to think that there are even more families who've been impacted by Robert Kurtzman, but who've never had the chance to get their story out. If you do have a story about Robert Kurtzman and you want to share, please reach out, uh, DM me on Facebook or email podcastoutofsight at gmail.com. And you can find that email in the show notes. But real quick, I want to tell you guys where you can learn more about Morgan Ingram and Cameron Collin. With Morgan, of course, there's that Crime Watch Daily, which the clips I used came from. And there's also a show on Oxygen called Accident, Suicide, or Homicide with investigator Paul Holes. They covered Morgan's story. And I'm going to leave a link to the RIP Morgan Ingram Facebook page, which has a lot more specific information about exactly what happened to her. And to learn more about Cam Collin, I highly recommend the podcasts Catch My Killer and True North True Crime. Cam's story has a lot of details, a lot of moving parts. What I told you barely scratches the surface. These podcasts get deep into those details and also feature the voices of Cameron's family. I'll leave a link to those episodes and to the Cam Collins Updates Facebook page, which is run by Cam's mom. Selena's autopsy was just released to family right around the time I was releasing the first episode of this podcast, at the beginning of 2022. 
So maybe someday in the future, there'll be an update when her autopsy has been reviewed in more detail. But that's the thing, too, with a bad medical examiner. Like, it just throws everything into question, makes things almost impossible seeming to investigate. Because even when the autopsy is reviewed, because of Kurtzman's history, I kind of feel like those results probably aren't going to be that thorough, and maybe we kind of have to take them with a grain of salt. I mean, even with the toxicology results and the ketoacidosis, it's just kind of hard to trust anything. I hate to be a negative Nancy, but I don't know. I guess it remains to be seen. But whatever the specifics of the autopsy, one thing that does seem clear by the state of Selena's body is that whoever did this to her is, like, unspeakably fucked up. Taking the possibility of accidental hypothermia off the table, then there's someone out there who has it in them to kidnap an innocent teenage girl and seemingly hold her alive for however long, only to kill her and put her body right back, dressed in clean clothes, right where she went missing, almost like putting her on display. Whoever did this really is a sick bastard. But which sick bastard? Please don't be expecting some kind of smoking gun or solved case, but we'll talk about it next time. Thank you for listening to Out of Sight, Missing and Murdered. If you like what you heard, I'd love for you to leave a five-star rating and a review. Give a like and a follow on Instagram and Facebook, and tell a friend or share on social media to spread the word. The voices in the intro belong to Cheryl Horn and Desi Rodriguez Lone Bear. And I want to give a huge thank you to Cheryl and Terrell, and to everyone who has helped or hosted me on this journey. If you want to get in touch, or if you have a story you want to share, please send a DM to the Facebook page, or email outofsightpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next week.